Grab that Bible. Let's open to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. We just finished the letter to Philemon, and we're going to move to Genesis next. But this morning, I wanted to preach this message to you. I'm reminded of so many reasons why I love being a pastor, not just getting to hang out with all of you, which, you know, that's a big one. But I love being a pastor for so many other reasons. Uh, it's a joy for me to, to get to help people. And as a, a pastor, I get to do that and not help people like pack on muscles or, I don't know, like a police officer. I, I don't help people deal with the law, but a pastor focuses on the spiritual. I deal with the, the spiritual. That's where I I'm equipped to offer help and love getting to help people figure out what God's word is all about, helping them understand what God's expectation is for them, helping them understand the gospel and helping people understand how to live in light of who Christ is and and what he's done. It's a joy for me to get to do that, but being a pastor also comes with some heartache happens pretty frequently. Dealing with the spiritual means automatically that you're going to deal with people's sin. Pastors don't get to choose. We take the good along with the bad. Sin certainly falls into that last category. Dealing with the consequences of sin, it's always heartbreaking and devastating. It's, it's always sad. It's always exhausting. As a pastor, I've learned that people can be pretty good at hiding their sin. They play the game. They they try their best to look good on the outside while the inside is consumed with sin. People are pretty good at it. They, They try to say the right thing at the right time. They try to do the right thing when the right people are watching. Good at it. Often under the delusion that they're getting away with it, that their sin is no big deal, people can convince themselves that that everything is fine. But God's word would tell us that everything is not fine. It's not fine. Moses warned his the, the people of Israel, he warned God's people that their sin would find them out in the Old Testament. Jesus says in the New Testament that nothing that is hidden will stay that way. Nothing that's covered will not be revealed in Luke 12. Nothing that's hidden will not be known. You, you can't hide your sin forever. You can't hide who you really are forever. And there are some people who are really good at pretending to be Others, really good at sort of stealing the identity of other people. Uh, the, the one I can think of, the best, most like, famous faker, his name's Ferdinand de Mara. He was just arguably the best imposter ever. He faked his way into being a civil engineer, a zoologist, a doctor of psychology. He pretended to be a monk. I'm not sure what that one was about, but he was a monk and he was an assistant warden at a Texas prison. 
He faked his way into being a philosophy dean, a hospital orderly. He pretended to be a lawyer and a teacher, even a doctor. And it was that last one that actually exposed him. Uh, He saved someone's life pretending to be this doctor, and news of his heroics is kind of what exposed him. He wasn't who he claimed to be. And the point is, is even as good as he was, the truth came out. He couldn't hide who he was forever. And that's what God's word wants to remind us this morning as we study 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. God wants you to know who you really are. It's a way for God to to help us look in the mirror, really see who we are. Through his word, God often exposes us. He helps us to see what we're really like, what we're really capable of. And God wants us to know how dangerous sin actually is. He wants you to consider this, the risk that you're taking as you pretend to be this person that you really aren't. As you hide your sin and and pretend to be someone that you're not, it has all sorts of consequences. Sin is messing you up in all sorts of ways can affect you physically and and mentally. Read that this morning in Psalm 32. Uh, The Psalms, by the way, is like, in a lot of cases, is like David's journal. You get some insight into what he's thinking, what he's going through. And there he lets us know what sin was doing to him. Physically, he was a mess. Mentally, he was a mess. He was losing sleep. His day was just robbed of anything good. No joy, because why? He's hiding his sin. We know that sin wrecks our relationships. We know that sin can mess up a day quicker than anything else. Steal your joy for sure. Yet far worse than any of that, I want you to see this morning from 1 Samuel 8 how sin affects our relationship with God. Far more important than what it does in your life is what it does to your relationship with God. Sin's most dangerous consequence by far is how it distances us from the Lord, how it leads us away, even to the point where we say, God, I don't want you at all anymore. It's hard to jump into a book eight chapters in. I know that. Chapter 8, 1 Samuel 8, this is God's analysis of his people. Just to give you some thoughts here, it's... God's analysis of Israel, of, of the effects of their sin. And, and we'll get to that after we read the opening verses. But I want you to know that what we read here, although it's old and may be removed from us, the same truth is, is here for us to grasp onto. Sin still affects you the same way. It still messes you up the same way. It doesn't matter what grade you're in or if you're homeschooled or if you're done with school. Sin doesn't care. Your heart is sinful and it, your sin pulls you away from God. And it's sin that convinces you that you're great, that you don't need God, that you know what's best and that you should be in control. The Bible tells us that sin makes us dumb, 
foolish. But the worst thing it does is to tempt us to think we don't need God at all. That sin that you're hiding, that you're keeping secret, it's one desire and purpose is to separate you from God. Sin doesn't care if you play sports or where you live. It doesn't care if you get straight A's. Our big idea this morning is this. Sin tempts you to think that you don't need God. And that is true for everyone. 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 1 says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after gain. They took bribes. They perverted justice. First Samuel, just to help us grasp this a little bit, it's a turning point for Israel. If we could take the time to kind of recap from Genesis all the way to Samuel, you would know, and and hopefully some of you are a little bit familiar with Israel, but you would know they've been through a lot. This people of God, they've been through so much. But by the time we get to 1 Samuel, we know for sure that they are in a bad place, spiritually speaking. They really need God's help, and they are far, far from following God. Like Jonah buying a ticket to Tarshish when he should go to Nineveh, like you going to Canada when you're supposed to go to Mexico. They're just they're headed in the wrong way. A huge ship just going the wrong way. In the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel... It's the turning of that ship, God bringing his people back into relationship with him. That's what's happening. God graciously bringing Israel to repentance, seeing their sin, seeing how sin has has wrecked their relationship with God and, and coming to repentance to God. And through Samuel, God led Israel to put away their idols, to, to, to begin to worship God again, how God said he wanted to be worshipped. Is that me? I don't, okay. Oh, no, it's fine. I just, it scared me. That, are you late for an appointment or? Okay, good. <laughs> I love junior high. I love it. Through Samuel, God brought his people back into the right place, spiritually speaking. Through Samuel, Israel is now genuinely worshiping God again. They are serving God again. They're loyal to God again, faithful to God again. But now, from chapter 7 to chapter 8, a lot of time has passed. Sin has crept its way back into the hearts of Israel. How do we know that? How do we know a lot of times pass? Well, now it says in verse 1, Samuel became old and he has two sons. And these sons have grown up and they are old enough for Samuel to make them judges. And they're old enough, notice, for the people to know that they aren't good judges. In verse 3, we even learn that Samuel's sons 
are very different from their dad. They're cool with bribes. They have no problem doing something wrong and saying that it's right or seeing something right and saying that it's wrong. Time has passed and there's a huge problem here. God's people are starting to drift away from him again. Sin is moving back into the hearts of his people. It's being welcomed back in just like we do that, like sins being excused a little. We're making sort of these huge leaps and excuses for why this sin is okay. It's being tolerated. It's being hidden in some ways and not in others. The point of these two sons of Samuel is that they're not living how God expects. They have money and they have power and they have popularity. Who needs God when you have all that? And it isn't just the sons of Samuel who are sinful here. In fact, the author, I believe, uses them to sort of just set us up for the sinful reaction of all the people. What sin was doing in the lives of Samuel's sons, it was doing in the hearts of every single person in Israel. They're just an introduction to the reality of what's really going on. It's sin making them foolish, making them dumb, and distancing them from God. Look at verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you are old, yikes, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice only... You shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. What do we learn from these verses? How does sin begin to make us think that we don't need God? Well, number one, sin convinces you to reject God's faithfulness. Sin convinces you to reject God's faithfulness. Verse 5 tells us that the elders request of Samuel that... He appoint for them a king to judge them like all the nations. It doesn't really seem that bad at first, does it? They just want a leader. They want a king, especially as we think about Samuel and Samuel's sons, right? Sons are horrible. Samuel's really old. This dude is moments from heaven. They're like, just appoint us a new leader. Samuel was upset. God's word tells us because he took it personally, so he does what he normally does. He prays to God because he's upset. And God's word to Samuel puts this into perspective for us. Look at verse 7. Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They are rejecting me from being king over them. In the way that that's written in the original language, it's so emphasized that you can't miss it. 
that we can't look past this and can't miss the reality that it has nothing to do with Samuel, has everything to do with God. God is the one who's being rejected here, not you, Samuel. The request for a king isn't a substitute for Samuel, but for God. They wanted to swap out God, and sin had led them to this place where they're thinking that, where they want to replace God. It's the same old idolatry of Israel, just a new twist here. Generally, Israel's request for a king isn't wrong. Moses gave them instructions for that back in Deuteronomy. It it isn't their request It's really the motive behind their request that's so wrong. Throughout Israel's history, they've shown one consistent trait. When they are in trouble, they cry out to God for help. Over and over, that's what Israel does. You see it in Exodus. You see it in the book right before this, Judges. But this time, they do not cry out to God. They just demand a replacement. We actually won't know this until chapter 12, but the people here in 1 Samuel are in a state of panic. One of their enemies, the Ammonites, have surrounded them. It's, it's about to go down, and they're worried. They're panicked. We need a human leader. We need somebody to, to get us out of this threat. So they want to replace God. They want a substitution. They want something different. They stop putting their trust in God and begin to think that a new leader can save them. And truthfully, we don't really need chapter 12 to understand that because of what happens in the chapter before this one, chapter 7. Just a quick recap, God's people in chapter 7 are outmatched, threatened by a different enemy of Israel, the Philistines. They had no chance to get out of this, but the text also tells us they have no king, they have no military might, and their only weapon of war was prayer. And you can guess what happened. God saved them. It wasn't Samuel had nothing to do with a human leader. God saved them. He rescued his people. And by chapter 8, because of sin, they forgot what God had done. Now again, they're under this threat of invasion. This attack is coming upon them again, but sin has made them so foolish. They begin to think, who cares about God? We need a, a replacement. We need someone to save us. Someone to go before us. Their solution is to replace him. They're convinced it's the right move. They just, they they can't see how foolish this is. It's like choosing to play baseball in the house because it's raining outside. I can neither confirm nor deny that I've participated in such a game. I did. You don't see how foolish it is. You don't understand how how dumb this is. Something, it just, it seems like this is the right move. This seems so reasonable, so, so obvious. Like this is what we need to do. And that makes sense until there's a baseball sized hole in the wall. 
Again, I can neither confirm nor deny. Mom, who's listening to this, I'm sure. I can neither confirm nor deny, but our sinful tendency to replace God can be so hard to detect. God shows us this first part here in chapter 8 to just remind us, no matter what, no matter how crazy, how dangerous, how difficult life is, God has proven himself over and over and over that he's faithful, that he's trustworthy, that he is the one who we want in control, that he is the one that we should be so fast to run to, so trustworthy. Jesus promised to deliver his disciples. He, he promised to be with them. That promise is, is so helpful to us still today. For all those who follow Christ, God promised that he would always be faithful. He always has been. He always will be. And sin wants you to doubt it. Rejecting God's faithfulness, doubting God, it should be our last Instinct, And this is where it starts. This is where sin begins. This is where it begins to affect you first. Doubting God's goodness, his faithfulness, his trustworthiness. Doubting his character. Maybe you're starting to think that you might know better or that God isn't interested in you anymore. God doesn't see the, the problem doesn't care about you. Maybe you think, I've been getting away with this sin for so long, I don't know if God actually cares about sin. What do we do? James chapter 4, verse 8 says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. We need to run to God. That needs to be our instinct. Rather than reject him, Draw near to him instead. Number one, sin tempts us to reject God's faithfulness. Number two, sin causes us to resist God's instruction. Causes us to resist God's instruction. Look at verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. Verse 13, he'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants. He'll take your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. 
Even though God greenlights Israel's request for a king here, God's still so gracious to give them this warning. Israel needs to know this. Before you insist upon this so much, know what your request will cost you. This warning is so loud and clear, isn't it? This king, he will take. He will take and take and take and take. Six times Samuel uses that phrase, and he emphasizes the words of what it is that's being taken. Sons and daughters and harvest and slaves and crops. Over and over, it's like Samuel just saying to us, think of what you're going to lose. Your sons, think of your sons, think of your daughters, think of all that you work for so hard. This king is going to take it. This is what you want. Verse 18, in that day when the king has taken what he wants, you're going to cry out just like you cried out when you were slaves in Egypt. But this time the Lord is not going to answer you. And look at verse 19, Israel refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Israel is not willing to listen to Samuel. They refuse, they, they, they resist, they will not listen to God's instruction. Sin has made them deaf to this warning. They are so eager to commit this foolishness. Rejecting God's wisdom, they, they won't allow God's instruction, his word to, to lead them. It just shows how how foolish they're being. They know what's true, but they will not listen. Perfect illustration here of hearing the truth versus believing the truth. It reminds me so much of this group. Hear the truth of the gospel so many times. You've heard God's word unpacked. You know what it is. Over and over you hear that truth, but that does not mean or make you believe it. You know what it is, but your sin keeps you deaf to it. You know Christ came and and died for your sin. You know you should turn from your sin and follow Christ. You know it, but it doesn't make you love it or listen to it. It doesn't make you believe it. like sin is a, a, a pair of earplugs that you don't even know you're wearing. Can't hear God's word in the way that you should. All you hear is sin's voice saying, we don't need this. We know better. Let's do it our way. Israel heard God's wisdom from Samuel, but they don't submit to it. They resist God's instruction. They, their, their sin kept them from listening. They were convinced they were right, that God was wrong, that they knew best. Uh, Proverbs twelve fifteen: the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to instruction. Sin causes you to resist God's instruction. It's sin that makes you want to reject God. It's sin that makes you want to resist his word. And one more quickly, sin calls you to return to the world. Number three, sin calls you to return to the world. 
In other words, sin tempts us to think that it would be better to belong to this world than to Jesus. That I'm going to be happier, I'm going to have more joy living in sin and doing things you know, our, our way, my way, than living obediently to Christ. Sin calls you to return to the world. Look at verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. God shows us how sin corrupts our joy. There is a hesitancy to be holy. There is a hesitancy to live the way God calls us to because sin tempts us to desire the world instead. Samuel had warned Israel what it would be like under this king that they want so badly, but Israel refuses to budge. Their desire, though, is to be like all the other nations around them. Did you catch that? We want to fit in. We want to be like everybody else. And this is like a a crazed, obsessed desire that must be met. Israel's saying this, by this insistence that this king should be over them and a desire to be like the nations. They're saying, we don't want to be different. We want to be like everybody else. I don't want to be different. I don't want to stick out. I don't want to do what you want me to do, God. I just want to fit in. Verse 20, we'll have a king to judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. This is exactly what God was for them. Precisely. We saw it in chapter 7. But Israel doesn't want God to be in that role because it means they're different. They wanted a human king. They wanted to be like the nations. Again, they just want to fit in. They want to get away from what God had called them to do. A few books before this one, a book of the Bible called Leviticus, there God told his people, you're going to be different. You're going to be holy because I'm holy. You're going to be separated from sin because I am. And that's going to be a sign to the nations around you that you're my people. You're not going to be like the godless doing whatever's right in their eyes. You're going to be different. Like Israel, you guys, sin pulls us away from God. It reminds us of just our desire to blend in. It causes us to believe that what the world can offer is is better than what God can offer. Sin pulls our eyes off of God and it has a way of putting them on ourselves. We begin to look around and and begin to compare our lives with other people's lives and we begin to want what they want. We begin to desire what they have and to live in the same way that they do. 
We become desperate to fit in and blend in and be like the world. We begin to think more about us. What about me? What I want? I want fame and success and riches. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to be made fun of. I just want to be comfortable. I want to just get through this. The temporal reward for an eternal price, Jesus said in Mark chapter 8. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? Sin makes us dumb and we forget what truly matters. Nothing in our world can even come close to what Christ offers us in the gospel. I don't know the state of your heart this morning, but I do know that given enough time, the truth will come out. You might be pretending to be a Christian. You should know that that sin that you love so much, it's not even close to eternal life. It's not even close to being worth it. Sin, it's, it's making you dumb and it's leading you and keeping you away from God. God wants you to look in the mirror and see that. And for the believers here this morning, God is, is showing us, junior hires, he's showing you what you're capable of. He's showing you what that heart is so desiring to do, returning to that sin that he freed you from. That sin is creeping back into your life. It can. And you need to be aware of that. Sin is, has that way of convincing you to tolerate it just a little more each day, to make those excuses just a little bit more. And if we're not careful enough, this is where we can end up just like Israel here. Enough time had passed where sin is leading them to do this. And if you don't think that can't be you, you're wrong. How can we keep from letting sin overtake us like this? What do we do? I see that hand. <laughs> what do we do? James 4, 8, we draw near to God. We confess our sin. We repent of our sin. We run to God. Rather than wanting to replace Christ, we should want to cling to Christ. Rather than wanting to be away from his word, we should be doing everything we can to know it better and deeper and fuller. Rather than trying to just do it our way and being like the world, we, we need to go arm in arm with other Christians, get plugged into our church and be with people who can help us walk according to our faith. Sin is dangerous. It's a look in the mirror. My prayer for you this morning is that you'll take that look. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it confronts us, challenges us. Lord, nothing in our world can do that like you can. Thank you for the example that we have in front of us here in 1 Samuel, this lesson to learn from. Lord, would you help us to learn? Would you help these young people to confess their sin and put their trust in you, to follow you, to fight against sin? 
Lord, keep our hearts from wandering away from you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you guys stand with me? As Jay was wrapping up, this just reminded me. Um, I'm just going to read Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 real quick. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And listen to this part. It says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's think about that as we sing, He will hold me fast. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold. Through life's fearful path For my love is often cold He must hold me fast He will hold me fast He will hold me fast For my Savior loves me so He will hold me fast He saves our history. I, Christ, will hold me fast. Precious in His holy sight, He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. But by in that such a cause. has been satisfied He will hold me fast Raise with Him to endless life He will hold me fast Till our faith is turned aside When He comes at last And He will hold me fast Savior.
often is, is that you would hold us fast, Lord, that you would help us to cling to those promises that you've made us. Lord, thank you again for this morning. I pray you'd go with us as we head to second hour, continue to keep us teachable. Lord, help us to hear from your word, Lord, and apply that truth to our lives. Lord, we need that help today. We're going to need that help this week pray you'd help us to cling to you, Jesus, our Savior and our King. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.